0: You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 4.6, Committing Thousands of Sins, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I can't believe that we are almost done with Char's counterattack. I haven't watched any movie so many times in such a short span of time, since I was like eight years old, binging on Star Warses, or Stars War.
0: And I'm Nina completely stole my end this week, I also was going to mention that I cannot believe we are almost done with Season 4. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 565 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Joshua J, Cassidy B, Misselman, Mikael J, Rowan, Doga. Bruno O, Mirai Rogue, Thomas S, Stephen S, Tariq L, Kat, Isaiah B, Jonathan R, and Lask. This podcast would not be possible without your support. By the time this episode comes out, the pin promotion deadline will have passed. It always takes a while to prepare and proofread the mailing list, pack, label, and stamp the hundreds of pins going out to eligible patrons, and I don't expect them to ship before the new year, but I will be sure to provide updates on our Patreon page. A big extra thank you to everyone who made this year's promotion and the launch of season 4 such a huge success. This week, we are joined by a new guest expert, Tatiana, who has come on to talk about the filmmaking, and in particular, the editing, in Char's Counterattack. Tatiana studied film at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, and is now a professional film editor working at WebMD. She also has experience editing and directing short films, including short animated film, and a little experience as an animator. Tatiana, welcome to the podcast. Hi!
2: Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled and really honored to be brought on to talk about this.
1: Well, we are thrilled to have you. This is an area that is kind of a blind spot for us. Neither Nina or I have any kind of real uh, training or experience in analyzing the technical parts of filmmaking. So we are very excited to have you come on and help us fill in that gap. Of course, especially for this monumental movie.
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm honestly just hoping that there's uh, lots for me to contribute.
1: I'm sure there will be. Uh, to give a sense of the context as we get started on this, this director, Tomino, who has overseen the Gundam franchise up to this point, uh, is widely regarded as something of an auteur filmmaker. But this is his first outing, I believe, making what we might think of as a conventional movie. Uh, he's previously directed movies that were movie-length and were shown in theaters, but they were compilations of existing footage with some new stuff added in, but telling a story that had already been told uh, in TV show format. He had also done one movie that was the direct continuation of an existing TV show, but as I understand it, the story for that one was adapted from pre-existing plans for what would have been the final episodes of the TV series. So this is really his first time making A movie, a new story, all new animation from scratch.
2: Yeah. And that's um, I think that that kind of comes through with this, both in the scope of, I think, ambition um, and a little bit of uh, the actual storytelling elements that happen within this two hour long film.
0: Before we get into the details, we did want to mention Tatiana is not familiar with Gundam, right? <laughs> you haven't watched any of the any of the series or...
2: Yeah, I have not watched any of the series. I, I can't even say that I've watched a full episode, but I am <laughs> familiar in the way that I would say the world is probably familiar with the Gundam franchise. It's mm. uh, pretty impossible to not know this extremely iconic property. <laughs> I had no idea that Gundam had such a wide kind of cultural and political landscape. There's a lot of world building in this. And even though I enjoyed the movie, there was, there was a lot to catch up with.
1: <laughs> there's so much world building on the edges of it. Like there's so much going on all the time in every shot <laughs> beyond just what is essential for the story itself.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think even from one of the first scenes, we're kind of seeing these somewhat alternate ideas of Tibet and India and the way that the world would kind of come together differently if it was this idea of Earth versus space and how human cultures develop within that. That's really amazing.
1: To get a sense for how the movie like struck you right off the bat, it starts sort of in the middle of the action. Um, what was your like immediate first impression when you started watching this film?
2: <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Well, one of my first sort of things that hit me was the film begins with a comet being thrown into the country of Tibet. And there's this huge bombastic event that a lot of people seem to kind of expect. Um, There wasn't really the reaction from a lot of the characters that I expected. There wasn't as much panic. There wasn't, um, you know, chaos happening. It seemed like the citizens of Earth, those people are used to war. They're used to, I'm going to call it terrorist attacks. That's what it reminds Mm -hmm. me of. Um, But I I think that's really interesting. I I assume that the director was interested in whatever was going to appeal to their audience, which is, I assume, skewing young in the late 80s.
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, having watched the movie, would you have said that this was intended for a young audience?
2: You know, um, my first instinct is to say yes, I do believe that this was intended for Children and younger skewing audiences, particularly male audiences in Japan, I think merchandising was definitely something um, that was always probably in the back of their minds as well. But there's a lot of really mature themes, Mm -hmm. um, ideas that Char brings up about environmentalism, what we owe or don't owe to humanity, uh, what we do and don't owe to the earth. Um, And then, of course, war and love and how we treat other people in order to get our way and whether or not that's justified. So uh, Mm
3: -hmm. but
2: I would say it's definitely a movie that you wouldn't one of those things that you wouldn't fully understand until you were an adult, but you probably did watch as a kid.
0: My impression from our coverage of the fan base, uh, as we've talked about the shows, is that the bulk of the fans were high school and college aged but that they did want sometimes to, to appeal to younger audiences and get younger audiences into the show.
1: I think you actually bring up a really good question about Char's Counterattack. Who is this movie supposed to be for? Because Gundam as a series started about 10 years before this movie came out. Right. But also it had been on TV with uh, new iterations just a couple of years prior. So there's going to be a subset of fans who got into it back in the late 70s and have been fans for 10 years. And they're probably in their 20s, 30s, 40s at this point. And then you have newer fans who would have come in more recently with Zeta Gundam and with Double Zeta. Double Zeta in particular seems to have been skewing younger. The cast is younger. It's more energetic. It's more slapstick. It's more fun. And so to then go to Char's Counterattack, where most of the cast are like, 30 year old adults does raise the question who did they think was going to be going to this is this a movie for new gundam fans or is this a movie that's really aimed at the people who watched the first one 10 years ago and i think the movie kind of tries to split the difference
2: i would agree
1: especially through characters like quest and hathaway
2: absolutely because quest although she's a character that I have a few qualms with. I think she actually does end up acting as a little bit of a a window for people like me who are watching this for the first time and don't necessarily understand what the political intrigue and the status of a lot of the characters are so like through her we find out I found out that Amaro is a new type I did not know what that meant before I had no context for that I just knew through her that's special I could tell through her because her father was a political figure that there is tension Um, and so that's really great because she's young and easy to connect with And I think that would possibly work for a young female audience as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the same could possibly be said about Hathaway. Um, This is a little bit of an origin story for him, if I'm correct. He has a a role to play later on in the series.
1: We won't say too much about that for spoiler reasons. (laughs) He did have a prior appearance in Zeta when he was like a five-year-old boy, but it it was very minor. This is really his debut also.
2: Okay, that makes a lot of sense as well. And then there's these kinds of um, clearly sexual and intimate relationships between Omro and Chen and Char and his second in command. Excuse me, her name escapes me right (laughs) now. I know it starts with an N. Nanai. Nanai, yes. And there's clearly an intimacy between all of them, but in a way that is very Um, child-friendly. One of the really great things, I think, too, is there isn't... Some of the tropes that um, sort of annoy me about anime sometimes. There is no fan service in this, which I really love.
3: Mm-hmm. That
2: helps make it very clear to me that this is also still aimed towards children. But yeah, you make a, an excellent point that these are clearly adult characters. They are not the teenage you know, shounen characters that we are used to seeing. Yeah, it really does. It, I'm, I'm really not sure who, who this is for, but I definitely wouldn't say that this was made for um, a newbie like me. <laughs> I don't think they had any intention of bringing in a new audience. The ultimate goal of this was bringing closure for those fans that had been with Gundam for over a decade or through the previous sagas and arcs that they had been through. And this was the end of what was going on between Amro and Char. This was the finale of what they were doing and their the tension between them and whatever it is that had happened with Lala. Again, I don't know what exactly happened with that, (laughs) but I can tell it really bothers them. And both these characters and the audience are eager to come to a conclusion regarding that sort of hate between these two characters.
1: That's really astute. I'm uh, I'm glad that the movie was able to convey all of that even without the the background. It did. They do make a couple of efforts there. Like during Char's speech, he sort of gives a recap of events that have happened, which feels sort of out of place and very like now I'm going to do exposition for the audience. <laughs> uh, so I, I do think they were maybe gesturing in the direction of a new audience. But I agree, the movie is not the movie is not for you.
2: <laughs> yes and that's a that's an interesting point about exposition there's not a lot of exposition in this movie exposition is something that people typically see as a bad thing in movies but there's there's good ways of approaching it and doing it typically if it makes sense that in this situation the character would be giving some sort of exposition so i believe it feels a little odd when char is doing that because it seems like the citizens of Zion should already be familiar with that history Again, even with Quest, we get this moment where she, after he's done talking, she's like, oh, I knew all that history, even though I'm <laughs> from Earth. And it's like, OK, was all that for you then? Who was who was that for?
1: <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I- I've heard it said of the director that he is allergic to exposition. He-, he tends not to like it, tends to avoid it wherever possible. And so that speech really stands out as very odd. And I have to wonder if he was forced to put that in. If that came as a note from the producer, like people do not know what is going on. You have to explain it. And then as a way to make fun of that uh, imperative, he then has Quest be like, no, I knew all that already.
0: I also appreciate your point, though, about reminding people who did see the show about what had happened, because I imagine at the time it was a lot harder than it is now to get your hands on like a physical copy of a show to rewatch it. And so people would not have had the ability to, oh, the movie is coming out. Let's rewatch the series before we go see the movie. Uh, A lot of them would not have been able to do that. And so you do have more need of kind of built in reminders about relevant events.
2: That's an excellent point, actually. It's it's hard to always remember that we don't have as easy access. And I know for even for this movie in particular for a very long time, Mm -hmm. it was difficult to necessarily get your hands on it. So maybe it's not necessarily exposition for the benefit of somebody like me, but it ends up working on a couple of different levels because of that, because of this longtime fan base who may not necessarily remember what happened at the beginning of the war.
1: That actually connects really interestingly to the movie's history abroad because Shards Counterattack got an official translation and an official English language release in 2002. But Zeta Gundam, one of the series that comes before it, didn't get released until 2004. And Double Zeta Gundam, the series that comes immediately before Shards Counterattack, did not get an English release until significantly after that. So it really was the case that people in the US, for instance, would have been watching this movie without having seen the two shows that came directly before it.
2: Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. That's so unusual. At least in my experience, particularly with movies being made from series, I haven't watched a ton of anime movies, but a few of the ones that I have seen, the creators are coming with the idea and the assumptions that you can easily catch up with this. You can download the manga. You can download any episode. You can go onto the fan wiki and and figure this out very quickly. That's, that's really fascinating that they would have a, a release like that because knowing the state of anime and animation in 2002 it wasn't really well known that you could come into any animated show as an adult and you are going to connect with what was going on that wasn't anywhere as normalized as it is now Again, I don't know much about (laughs) the rest of it. I haven't seen it, but somebody higher up believed that this is, I guess for whatever reason, maybe a little bit more appealing to a wider audience. I'm not sure.
0: I mean, the fans joke constantly about Bandai's mismanagement of its IP internationally, (laughs) that they have not been good at capitalizing on Gundam outside of Japan. So it's a mystery.
1: Well, you have to remember that in 2002, they were riding high off of Gundam Wing, being just a huge like smash hit, reshaping the whole industry uh, over the course of its run on um, Cartoon Network. But Wing was followed on TV in the US by the original first Gundam in 2001, and that one did not see anywhere near the same kind of success. So maybe from a 2002 perspective, They saw the movie not just as a good option because it had more exciting robot fights, but also the safer option because translating and dubbing a single two-hour movie must be way cheaper than doing the same for another 50-some episode long series like Zeta Gundam.
2: That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. and. My uneducated guess on this would also be that maybe they had an r- earlier release of this over in the States because of the really top-tier level sort of fight animation that does mm-hmm. happen within this movie. It is exceptional. It's aged extremely well. What year is it?
1: It came out in 1988.
2: Wow. That's an old guy. <laughs> That's really impressive. That's genuinely very impressive. And I could see, if I, if I were a producer... Or one of the big wigs I can imagine that I would say it's like they're Americans and their kids they want to see big Gundams fighting in space and you definitely get that in this movie
1: I mean I that is what I want to see <laughs> I could also imagine I don't know if this was the case but if I were a film executive thinking about whether to release this movie or not I do think it's both really good right it makes a very strong first impression as you said the animation is fantastic but it has so many loose threads it's so obviously incomplete that having seen it a person might want to go and track down other gundam and watch that other gundam so maybe that was part of the appeal
2: i could absolutely see that um that brings me a little bit to kind of the the animation because on one hand It's very easy for me to praise the fight animation in this movie. The Gundams are impeccably done and the sort of zero gravity animation, which is very fluid. I can tell exactly that there's very low gravity. I believe that wholeheartedly. I feel their weight and the lack of their weight. I can tell that it was done with a lot of not just experience and skill, but love and while on the other hand, there are scenes, especially when we're kind of looking at background characters, characters will be completely static. There's a couple of points where I even noticed that faces are drawn. Um, I don't want to say lazily.
1: I think I know what you mean. With very
2: low detail. Yes, yeah. they don't. It doesn't always look as great. That's pretty indicative of maybe sort of production issues or maybe low budget.
1: Yeah, I think that's plausible. We do know that they were crunched for time in making this, uh, that the movie was made in something like eight months, that the team doing photography had to split into shifts and work day and night to get it done in time. Uh, And I believe that I saw recently that all the recording for all the voice actors had to be done in just three days in order to keep costs down. But also, part of that is just sort of the... The emphasis, I guess, <laughs> the mobile suit fights are very important.
2: Absolutely. I think if they if they had to make a choice, I'm very glad that they made it in the places that they did for where to spend their time, making sure that things look really good. Um, not even necessarily Gundam fights. The personal fights, especially between Char and Amaru, <laughs> those <laughs> look really great. And there's, I believe, a thematic reason for that, because this is ultimately the story end of these two characters' stories and who we're really focusing on. And mm-hmm. that's, that's good. I, I think that's good. If they have to make a choice, I'm glad that's a choice they made.
1: I have noticed there's a rhythm you can see in the scenes with people where, you know, in the scenes with mobile suits, everything is moving all the time. Everything on screen is right. moving. But when there's people, it tends to be that, like, one person moves <laughs> and then they stop and another person moves. Mm-hmm. There's usually like one focal person moving and then everything else is pretty static, but it's not permanently static. You know, they sort of trade off being the person who gets to move.
2: Exactly. And that's one of the things as far as the animation goes, I think that's where it lacked, arguably, because it was it, it stands out to see, you know, this beautiful animation everywhere else. But then the dialogue scenes end up being kind of visually boring maybe possibly because they are dialogue scenes. All filmmakers know a lot of dialogue scenes are very difficult to make look interesting, but there's information that needs to be conveyed. There are emotional beats that have to be hit between characters in order to progress the plot forward because it can't just constantly be fights. So again, I understand why they did that, but it's a bit of a hit for the movie for me.
0: Possibly related to that, I noticed something that they do quite a bit, which is not often done in live action, which is that scenes are shot and someone will be talking, but with their face away from the camera. You know, Bright will be talking, but we're looking at the back of his head. Right. The guy at the airport will be talking to Mirai, but we're looking at the back of his head as he does so.
1: It's just so much easier to draw it that way.
0: I think as human beings, we're expecting there to be constant
2: movement. You, you can't simply sit somebody in front of a camera and expect them to not move. So mm-hmm. we're always expecting, like, if something isn't moving, that's because it's not alive. It's not supposed to have animation or sentience or importance within that scene.
1: Often the scenes are composed in a very sort of dense and layered kind of way. There's a lot of different planes uh, that we're looking at. Sometimes the actual action will be happening in the background, but there will be people in the foreground. Um, Often there's, you know, in basically every scene of the bridge, there's like people around the edges doing stuff while the main characters are talking. And sometimes all of that background and foreground action is like actual action with people moving. And then sometimes it's very static. Which I think makes it stand out all the more when it, when it is static.
2: Right. <laughs> it absolutely does. You know, it's it's a two-hour long movie. So not everybody, as they watch this, is typically going to be looking at those very little details. But what I do believe makes up for that is that kind of idea within animation of making making a good frame. And it's very much the same within live action, a large chunk of the time too. What you're looking at should be visually dynamic. What colors are being used? Um, The color palette, I believe in this movie is actually really sort of, it's not vibrant. This isn't, you know, it's not guardians of the galaxy. (laughs) It's not outlaw star. It's, Really more reminiscent of a lot of kind of classic anime, a little bit more of a subdued color palette, Mm -hmm. frames and staging um, that make it so it dates it a little bit, which is which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We all kind of appreciate the things that have have come before.
1: (laughs) The color palette actually made me think of the sort of washed out look that like movies from the 70s have. Mm.
2: That's interesting. I I wonder if it's just I have to imagine it's a distinct choice on the director's part. This is quite a dark story ultimately overall. But I think what's interesting even if this is maybe a little bit more muted on its color palette, there's a lot of innovation sort of going on at the same time. You know, this was one of the first Gundam pieces of media that involved CGI for the, the colonies, mm-hmm. and that was not a common thing to integrate both CGI and 2D animation at the time period. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating that he decided to make this a muted color palette, but also visually so distinct and new.
1: You mentioned the CGI. I found an interview with one of the producers who worked on this movie where he mentioned, I don't know if this was actually what they paid, but he mentioned the price tag originally quoted to them by the CG studio that put it together. And that shot of the rotating colony cost something like $5 million in today's money.
2: Wow. (laughs) I'm always happy to hear that a director is being given sort of the breadth. So I think that's I think that's fascinating. It's Do I necessarily agree that it was worth it? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure because, of course, that one shot of the colony is beautiful, especially for, you know, somebody in the audience like me seeing the idea of these, like, these colonies for the first time. They are huge. They're very lived in. They have a lot of green grass, which is, well, sorry, not just green grass but a lot of a lot of foliage there's cities within these they have this beautiful shot i remember that stuck with me of char um sitting I, I assume in his home and you can see the the kind of curvature of the night lights outside of his window and that's such a like it's a beautiful unique thing that i've never seen before so maybe maybe the director was kind of trying to show that like these colonies are special places that have a lot of humanity and unique culture to them and maybe connecting us in a way with char i'm i'm entirely speculating here <laughs> sure but i was i was invested like the the moment i saw the colonies i i was very invested in finding out more about them
0: the other thing that had occurred to me later because it's still a very beautiful shot even now but i was sort of trying to send my mind backward to when I first saw Toy Story, because that was the first fully digitally animated feature I ever saw. And I remember being in awe, just like completely amazed at it. Uh, and that the feeling might have been very similar for people in the theater watching this movie, seeing that scene. I would venture to to bet
2: the same because even in the year 2021, seeing that type of innovation within this film is still very striking to me it's still very curiosity kind of stimulating and though we don't end up finding out much more about the colonies it shows me that this is something valuable both to the production and also the people within that world Mm -hmm. so In a way, it's a little bit of a critique because it makes me care about something that doesn't necessarily end up getting paid off. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. But at the same time, it does stoke my interest.
0: So we've talked a bit about things about the animation, good and bad, uh, that stood out to you. Were there other aspects of the, the composition, the framing, or just things about the production generally that stood out?
2: Yes, um... There are some really great choices that I'm not sure if they are done within the rest of the franchise. But one thing that I really enjoyed was the fact that the pilots, when they are within the suits, we don't see them surrounded by, you know, machines and buttons. We see their seat and then the rest is invisible, which is really gorgeous because it makes me feel personally, as if they are still very tiny within this space and within the small part of who they are as a small human in this large thing within this even more unfathomably large space. So we never end up losing the connection that we have to the human being inside the Gundam because it's very easy, I think, to get lost in the idea of fighting space robots and lasers (laughs) and swords and, Uh and guns. And funnels. But what they do is they make sure that we are almost always kind of seeing the, the human and the heart inside and staying connected to the drama. We're staying connected to the story. So, like I said, we're not seeing the humans in a Gundam, we're seeing a human within their space and their mm-hmm, surrounding mm-hmm. or even if there is dialogue that's happening sometimes instead of seeing them inside of it we would see the Gundam and in we would see the Gundam in the foreground and in the corner which in a very stylized very sort of 80s looking way we would see the face of mm-hmm. the pilot talking
1: like in a separate frame that cuts into the the action
2: Yeah, and not only is it, I think, really charming, I think it's very cute. It adds a sort of action and visual sort of dimension to to what we're looking at. And I think that's really great that they understood that these are human beings and we're never really losing sight of that within these Gundam fights, at least as much as they could, because sometimes (laughs) you just got to see the robots.
0: We've speculated because at least the the picture-in-picture sort of shots that they do, uh, and the the wraparound screen that makes their cockpit invisible.
1: The 360-degree panoramic monitor. Uh, those,
0: oh. have, those have been consistent elements through, what, Zeta? Yeah. Um, but that the show doesn't ever want us to forget the real stakes, and that when these machines blow up, when they fight, there are people in them. There are people dying. Right. And that's
2: something that they keep pretty consistently throughout the movie as well, especially when we're sort of seeing two people within one that's clearly very intimate.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: At least to me, that seems very intimate. It is. Um, <laughs> which makes me uncomfortable because of a couple of uh, scenes with Quest.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: But I think, I, I think that's a really great choice And I'm glad they kept that consistent for this movie.
1: There's a couple of times where instead of doing the picture in picture or um, doing a shot from inside the cockpit, they show you the mobile suit coming at you, but then they like make the cockpit area semi transparent. And so you can see the person sitting in there. They do it uh, once with Char and once with Quest uh, toward the end of the movie.
2: And that's a really great choice, filmmaking wise. It gives me this sense that these people are very in tune with the machine that they're in. Mm -hmm. We're never thinking that these are two separate entities. Quest does seem she has two different Gundams that she uses very recklessly. And I think that ends up reflecting her story as well because she uses these machines recklessly, she treats herself recklessly. She treats her heart recklessly and the relationships that she has very recklessly. Mm -hmm. And Char, on the other hand, while being very different, he is very intimate and passionate about his goals that he's trying to achieve. So he also uses people as tools as well as his Gundam. And that's a wonderful way of Showing that is that that kind of cross, it's not a cross dissolve, that's not what it <laughs> is, but it's a way of visually telling us that these people are both one and very separate from what they're actively using in order to achieve their goals in these fights.
0: I love that observation about quests because I never put together... That the way she treats her mobile suits is sort of a reflection of the way she approaches life and everything else, <laughs> including herself. And
2: it makes sense because she's a 13 year old girl, which apparently a bunch of the other characters forgot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Aye>. Yeah. <laughs> and that connection between Quess's, like body herself and her mobile suit gets made really early on. Um, she has that line. When she's in the simulator where she's like it's too big for my hands but then Mm. when she's uh piloting the the like brightly colored mobile suit with gyune the hobby hyzac she has it doing all kinds of crazy moves and then we do get a cut into the cockpit and we see her like doing the same thing doing the exact same movement with her arms that she was just making the robot do
2: and I loved that moment. That was probably one of the few moments where I, I felt that Quest was charming. Not crazy about her character. <laughs> but yeah, it's a wonderful way of visually telling us that not only is she a natural at this, but that she is She's thriving in this sort of situation that she's been put in. Her, her recklessness was rewarded when Amaro and Char were fighting. She smacked a gun out of Amaro's hand. That's a ridiculous thing for a teenage girl to do and then ran off with this fully grown man. In order to do what? He has no idea. I don't think anybody knew in that moment what she was going to do. But then we see her, and it's the most interesting that she is. I think it's the most charming. Um, the animation is charming as well to match that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then when it comes time for her to sort of meet her fate, piloting that new white one, it's clear to me like it's very special and it should be to somebody who is an exceptional new type, but she ends up just using it so recklessly, in order to just like manipulate her her way into Char's heart, mm-hmm. when she's already been manipulated as well. So I think it it really reflects that by the time she does enter Al- Alpha Gundam, is
1: that uh, what it's called? The Alpha Aziru.
2: Her new mobile suit, the Alpha, is not stark white, but it's very plain. It doesn't have any of her sort of personality traits the way that the ones that we've seen. For other characters do, or Mm. much less the one that she had before, and ended up recklessly damaging. So by the time she gets this very special one, it's really telling the audience as well, it's like, this is not where she should be. This is not Mm. a place where she is going to thrive. This is not going to turn out well for her. And as we know, it doesn't.
1: We recently had a costume designer come on to talk about the the sort of aesthetics and the costume design in the movie, and uh, they made the point that we should really be thinking of the mobile suits as the character's costumes. And they convey everything that a costume would convey about this character as a person.
2: I would agree completely. I think even um, with Amuro's mobile suit, his Gundam primarily consists of red, blue, and yellow, and those are primary colors. So it ends up making his costume or his sort of I'll say personality, because um, I don't know too much about him. But it makes it easy to connect with him. He's he's good. You know that. Here are colors, and here is a suit that looks cool and is easy to connect with, while Char's, on the other hand, is it's red. It looks like what we see sometimes when we think of, like, 80s Russian propaganda. It sort of reminds me of... Um, these organic shapes which also connects him to the idea of environmentalism but he also is his mobile suit is still very intimidating looking it has one eye Mm -hmm. it's obviously not an eye but he ends up looking like cyclops he's sort of monstrous in this really beautiful way
0: oh my gosh beautiful monster is the perfect description of char
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) We do call it an eye in the Gundam fandom. We call it a mono eye. Mm-hmm. so you're you're totally right on there. And you know, if you notice his soldiers, their mobile suits really make them look like World War One or World War II like trench soldiers.
2: yes, i I absolutely noticed that i I was also in the military for about six years, and it very much reminds me of the outdated sort of ideas of what uniforms are. And yes, very, very World War One, very attached to these sort of authoritarian mm-hmm. ideas, um, not positive sorts of ideas come to mind when you think of something that's just this army green and there seems to be a mass production of them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It makes me very curious about this sort of, Militaristic mobile suit culture within their sort of military forces. Because I know for me, when I was a service member, there was a lot of emphasis put on your individuality is not what's important here. What's important is that you can follow orders. What's important is that you aren't necessarily making choices for yourself and that your ideas and humanity isn't coming into it the way that you know, could be a detriment mm-hmm. the way that it was with Quest, the way that it was with Chin, the way that it ended up being for Char because it seemed to me by the time they were done, Char's loss was very personal. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think I can theorize that um, in the Neo military, your chances of getting your own special unique mobile suit increase dramatically the closer you are to being a 13-year-old girl. So... <laughs> Quest gets two unique mobile suits, uh, being a 13-year-old girl. right? Yune, who is quite young but not a girl, gets one unique mobile suit. And Rezin, who is uh, way too old but a woman, gets uh, her uniquely colored mobile suit. That's clearly the system they're using here.
2: It makes me wonder, it's like, okay, so is it just the main cast? We want to make sure that they're visually distinct, um, or is it that... You know, we're still trying to tell the audience about these characters because I can see with um, it's resin, the one who had the purple mobile suit. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell she's there's something going on with her. I don't know what exactly she kind (laughs) of disappears after a moment, but she's very intimidating and she's she's aggressive and it feels like she's earned her place and had to to push just to have that sort of personality that shines through as opposed to being another grunt in a mobile suit.
1: And her her purple grunt mobile suit really does tell that story because it says this is a woman who has worked her way up out of the ranks based on her skills. And so naturally, she's very resentful of these like teenagers who were picked out and told they were special and given special mobile suits just because they happened to be close to the brass.
2: And that's, I mean, not to say that isn't what happens in military situations, of course, not with children. Uh, There's always favorites. There's always people who are going to rise up very quickly because of who they're in proximity to um, and given leeway on things that should be a little bit more standardized. I have a hard time imagining what strategically making a mobile suit um, purple does. (laughs) <laughs> other than possibly make you a target. On a visual level, if we're if we're taking ourselves out of the story, it looks really cool. It's really fun to look at. We're not looking at the military green mobile suits lying around because we know that they're probably going to explode in a couple of minutes.
1: <laughs> We've been talking a lot about your uh, impressions, watching it as a newcomer to Gundam. As a professional editor, what did you think of the movie as a piece of work?
2: Well, overall... <laughs> it's it's a little difficult sometimes because um it can be intimidating to see something as iconic as Gundam with a critical eye especially as an editor because I I want to understand this. I I know that there's a good reason for a lot of the choices made but One of the things that I think really makes this movie a little bit of a struggle sometimes is the pacing Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um, and the length of the movie. I think there's quite a bit that could have been cut out. But my biggest criticism as an editor is so I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of the Kuleshov effect.
1: No, no, what is that? Explain that.
2: So the Kuleshov effect um, was obviously named after uh, a filmmaker who sort of pioneered in this. Imagine that you see on TV, you see an old man's face, and in the very next shot, you see a young woman sunbathing, and then you go immediately back to the shot of the old man's face. Now, naturally, that ends up implying that this old man is looking at this young woman and possibly being kind of creepy towards her, right?
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So that's what the coolest shot effect is. It's something that editors have to understand when you put a series of shots next to each other, that is your way of communicating to the audience what you want them to feel, what you want to imply that the character is feeling and what is going on. And so one of the things that it can also be used for is things like location. Where are we within this world? And there's a few moments within the movie where it seems like they are so eager to move on to the next action or the next bit of dialogue that, it's a little bit easy to get lost sometimes and it ends up making the pacing feel a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. An example of that that stood out um, to me would be when Hathaway is trying to literally wrangle Quest with a rope when she's bothering poor Chen. And we see just that moment of Quest being tangled in those ropes, but the very next cut is to a completely different room It's very confusing because our brains are wanting to have a sort of resolution to that action. My brain wants to see Hathaway bringing quests back in, and I expect there's to be a reaction to that. I'm not expecting us to suddenly be somewhere else and the action to be happening in a totally different place. Or later on in the movie, there's also a moment during Amuro and Chin... Oh, sorry, Char's fight where we can see Amaro return to his mobile suit on Axis and before it's about to be detonated. But we just saw Char within Axis itself and suddenly he's in his mobile suit, too. Mm hmm. And it's fine. It's not a huge thing that's going to completely throw us off. It just makes it feel as if things are happening very quickly. And it makes me have to work a little bit harder to put those pieces together. And that could be used really effectively in some movies. Um, But I'm not really convinced that that's the case in this.
0: My overwhelming reaction the first time I watched this movie was just, wow, that was really fast. (laughs) The pacing felt very quick and like a whole lot happened in those two hours to the point where it was hard for me to follow, especially that first watch through, everything that had happened. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) And I do think a lot of the scenes cut very abruptly, it's like it feels like the scenes are not being allowed to conclude, they are just being stopped. Uh, Even to the point of like cutting a sound effect right in the middle of the sound effect.
2: It's a weird thing to really have to discuss because pacing and tone are such difficult things to really grasp for a lot of filmmakers. and. I know this isn't the director's first time, his first movie, but I think that's a really big weakness that he ends up giving to this movie because it it does feel fast, but it's it's also kind of boring in some places. Sometimes it ends up dragging and attention and time being, being given in places where it, it shouldn't. And then just moving on quickly through the other things. So it makes it hard for you as an audience member to really get attached to whatever it is that just happened because you're trying to catch up. You're trying to make sure that you're still following all these different little threads that are constantly being pulled throughout the runtime of the movie without feeling like, okay, I understand what just happened there. I understand that this is a result of this direct thing happening before. So that's that's my kind of issue with it as an editor. I'm not sure if there were post-production issues, um, especially with things like sound effects. Um, Sound design is a really important thing, especially for animation. Um, And generally they do a really, really lovely job. I'm a very big fan of the sound design in this movie, um, but that's different than sound Mm -hmm. editing of course sound sound design is is the you know the way that the explosion sound the way that the music comes in at certain emotional parts the way that the voices are you know being mixed together when there's a crowd scene and who is it that you're hearing are you hearing screams are you hearing a very quiet conversation um and then you know then there's just the mixing, which it's how it seems like kind of got left by the wayside Mm. with it.
1: You had mentioned the length of the movie before, and I think you kind of hinted at what you meant about that just now when you said the movie is both very fast and yet also boring in places. Were there things that you felt like should have been cut?
2: I've been thinking about that. Um, Yes, but I don't think that I would feel this way necessarily if I was a fan of the series beforehand. I think there's some character interactions that happen that I'm not connected to. Um, Honestly, I I feel like most of what happened with Hathaway's mother and sister could have been cut out, but maybe that would be important later. Maybe they've been important characters beforehand. In fact, I I remember seeing from my research that uh, Hathaway's mother was... important character at some Mm -hmm. point maybe they're making sure that we see these characters for the purpose of the fans maybe that's the fan service that they wanted to give instead but um I, i sort of wish that their pieces have been taken out um i wish i we had spent less time Um, making quests into an impetulant girl getting in the way of these poor women just trying to do their jobs Um, and maybe seeing why Hathaway seemed to care for her so much or why that other pilot whose name I've unfortunately forgotten but who's um, an artificial new type seemed to care for her so quickly Mm -hmm. instead of just being annoyed with quests and seeing her annoying other people, I wish that we had been able to spend time with why we should care by the time she dies. Because honestly, by the time she's dead, I'm just like, okay, cool, we don't have to deal with her anymore. <laughs> Which I feel horrible for because it's it's a 13 year old girl who was manipulated, losing her life. But I feel like we could have spent a little bit less time um, with ostia <laughs> Naji
1: is how we pronounce it over here mm-hmm.
2: I, that's another character that i feel um is is somebody that the fans are are connected to for some reason and he ends up losing his partner in it and while that's sad i i don't see why that necessarily needs to be in this movie mm. Um, how that was really moving the plot along.
1: Yeah, the scene where Astinaji is sort of crying over Keira's body and Amuro is talking to Chan about it is constructed as though it were a scene about Amuro feeling motivated to finally take down Char, but... Finally taking down Shar has been Amro's number one motivation throughout the entire movie, and there's been no question at all about it. Like Exactly. We don't need another scene establishing his motivation.
2: <laughs> right. I feel like the director wanted to spend some time sort of celebrating
0: certain characters within this movie. So I feel slightly differently about the Mirai and Chamin parts, Because it does feel like the movie needs something to tie us to Earth. To, like, remind us that Earth is full of people who will be affected if this thing happens. Because the consequences of that final asteroid drop aren't going to be felt by any of the people fighting the battle. Not really. But clearly they didn't quite hammer that home if... For someone who's less connected to the characters by the end of it, it's like, eh, that didn't really need to be. there. <laughs> I, I,
2: I feel as if they, I literally have a note here about them. I was like, I wrote the very first time like my third and I was like, there's no way that they're getting off earth. I can tell right now that's not happening. And so I expected there to be a little bit more of their own plot happening on earth. They're sort of struggle and we do see that we see we see moments of that but there's no real payoff to what is going on with them. These people on earth, their sole motivation seems to nebulously be don't be close when the comet hits. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they're doing. I know they want another shuttle but I'm not sure if they're traveling in order to get to another shuttle off Earth. I want to care. I want to care about their story. I'm not sure the movie justified to me why I should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it ends up feeling like filler and ends up feeling like just an extra thing in the movie that doesn't necessarily hold too much weight to the ultimate outcome of Axis being thwarted and directed away from Earth and Amaro and Char finally ending this battle that had something to do with somebody before.
1: And you could imagine, I mean, we see, you know, there's, there's like the little kids, um, there's the hippies, we see like other people on Earth, there's a brief shot of a monk. And so you could imagine a version of this where all of the people on Earth like lend their willpower and their psychic abilities, like they're helping to form the spirit bomb <laughs> uh, in Dragon Ball Z. And they all contribute to this big, miraculous thing that happens to divert the asteroid. But that isn't the version of the movie that they made.
2: No, not at all. And I wish that we had seen more of that because I think that would have been a really strong point of connection. Because obviously, as of right now, we are all earthlings. We are all people who have a vested interest in our lives, the lives of our friends and families and lovers. And if you wanted to show Earth and have us be invested in whether or not, you know, this huge asteroid ends up crashing into it, then there's better ways to do that. Giving, you know, Hathaway's family a lot more agency and decisions. And like you said, having the people of Earth, you know, give, their contribution to whatever this kind of psychic force that seems to exist within this universe Mm
3: -hmm. is. Mm -hmm.
2: But we just end up seeing some nice shots of them at the beginning. Quest has, you know, Quest's friend from India. We see some nice shots of some people looking at the lights at the very end of the movie during the credits, and they end up feeling like an afterthought. So I assume it, it has to be that the director felt like who we really have to be concerned with is just Amaro and Char.
0: You brought up Quest when you were talking about things you wish they could have spent time differently on. I know Quest is a bit of a flashpoint among a lot of fans. I don't know the full details because I was trying to keep away from that information before we watched the movie. Uh, For me, was a difficult character because I can sympathize and feel pity toward her Uh, Because she is a child and making mistakes and a lot of the reason that she is the way she is, you know, the movie points to her upbringing. Right. (laughs) But she's so unlikable. She's extremely unlikable. And has almost no scenes that redeem that. You know, we talked about her goofing off in the mobile suit and making it do funny poses. And that's simultaneously some of her most childlike behavior and some of the most relatable and likable behavior
2: right seeing her kind of I I think we end up liking that because it's it's very cute and we expect somebody especially an anime character with blue hair who's clearly young acting in a cute way and maybe having crushes on you know authority figures that's relatable but She ends up not really going anything past that. We don't find out anything about her other interests. We find out she had a friend on Earth who sort of explained to her this thing about new types possibly you can make your yourself a new type through your spirit but the only thing we end up really knowing about is like she's a rich girl who comes from a life of affluence we don't anticipate that she's you know really had to grow up quickly she seems to be very annoying to the woman i assume is her stepmother
0: her father's
2: mistress mistress okay that that reads <laughs> um she has no real reverence for anybody who doesn't seem to have both uniqueness and power within society. And so that's why I guess she ends up not being attracted to somebody who's lovely and her own age, like Hathaway, but she quickly moves on to Amaru. And then she's mad that Chin is there getting in the way. And then she immediately moves on to Char when we sort of get a glimpse of possibly her philosophy and beliefs. She seems to believe that the earth is a place full of bad people, but we don't have any idea why she really feels that way. She's lived a very comfortable life and seems to be taken care of by her father, who she ends up killing. So when she's so infatuated with this with Char who is literally the leader of this entire society it makes sense but it also makes it very easy to dislike her also people need to stop taking advantage of this little girl who's clearly just kind of going along with the flow and doing whatever she feels is gonna benefit her best
1: it's interesting that she is so difficult to like and that there is sort of so little going on there beyond her fascination with these powerful men. Because, as you said earlier, Quest is our window into this movie. For newcomers to the series, Quest is the eyes through which they see the whole thing. And in some ways, Quest is just like a stereotypical Gundam fan. She thinks Amuro is cool. She thinks Char is cooler. She loves mobile suits.
0: (laughs) I was going to make a different theory. Quest and Hathaway are maybe meant to be stand-ins for like, contemporary youth at the time that the movie came out and that we're meant to feel a certain intergenerational conflict here. We have wondered in previous Gundam shows whether or not some of the young characters represent how the creators who are, you know, universally older (laughs) feel about quote unquote the youth of today. And so is Quest in all of her like affluence and entitlement and Hathaway, in his self-centeredness and in his not really seeming to understand the full repercussions of what's going on, is that how Tomino and his contemporaries felt about teenagers in the late 80s.
1: Including their own children. Because I think around now, Tomino's, uh, at least one of Tomino's daughters would have been somewhere around Quest's it age.
2: certainly feels that way to me. Um... It it brings to mind Neon Genesis Evangelion the way that the creator of that had quite a bit to say about otaku culture and the way that they responded to his work and how angry he became because of that. And never mind Neon Genesis Evangelion as as huge as that is, there had to have been quite a bit. Of people who had grown up with it and were now adults, but were very invested. As an anime fan myself, there's things that I grew up with that I'm always going to have strong feelings about. And especially Mm -hmm. if there's, you know, ends up being a movie version of it, I'm going to be really invested in that. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible, and I think even probable, that there was a little bit of contempt (laughs) in (laughs) the way that they wrote these characters because. When we're watching the beginning of the journey that these two children go on and their first times in mobile suits, it's literally just handed to, to Quest and Hathaway at best just had to kind of like sneak into one. And then he got, and then he got to go on to a space <laughs> battle. It's, it's not something that either of them had to earn or, or work for. It wasn't something that they really needed to be involved in at all.
1: I wonder if the generational conflict Nina observed has anything to do with the conflict between the different generations of fans. Mm -hmm. Were the first Gundam fans now into their 20s and 30s resentful of the young punks who came in (laughs) on the later shows? That's certainly the sort of thing that happens today. Among fandom.
2: Oh, absolutely. I know I have to actively, I catch myself feeling that way because, you know, when we were younger, anime wasn't nearly mm. as accessible, but it's much more accessible than it was in the 80s. Yeah. There's these waves constantly coming in, rediscovering, and probably pushing for you know, more modern ideas and their own idea of, of what a series should be and who these characters you know, why they matter and who they are. Um I think ultimately the the problem that I really had with quests and honestly, most of the female characters in this movie was that they got attached to one of the male characters. They supported them in something and then they probably died. Yep. Yeah. That was honestly the pattern. And that's really reflective of course, of the time and the way that stories were told. This is the late 80s when it came out. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, we we aren't seeing a lot of skin in this movie is refreshing for something (laughs) of that time. But it's uncomfortable when you realize Chen and Quest, they don't end up really mattering unless they're attached to a male character.
1: Chen's ultimate contribution is that by dying, she gives Amaro the psychic ammunition he needs to finish the fight.
2: And that's not even clear that that's what's happening, <laughs> at least to me. <laughs> My first watch through, I wasn't even confident that she died. I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Then I rewatched it. I knew a little bit more about what a psycho frame was. And yeah, that's her and Quest are just there in order to serve the goals of the two main male characters.
0: More than anything else, Quest shows us what a monster Char is, how duplicitous and manipulative. And that's really
2: awful, but it's almost almost a relief by the end of the movie to see that he isn't genuinely interested in this 13-year-old girl. (laughs) Because I I wasn't, I was pretty sure, but I was not convinced beforehand. Mm -hmm. And by the time he admits that he found Quest annoying, and he literally used her as a machine, as he says in the film. It's like, oh, good? <laughs>
0: good? <laughs> At least you're not a pedophile,
2: yeah. Exactly. Like, that's that's a low bar, but let's be honest, uh, for anime, that's not a bar that's frequently cleared.
1: So, mm. uh, As long as we're talking about Quest, I want to point out some specific shots. Um, the movie very rarely includes point of view shots, shots where we are clearly within the eyes of a character. The one that's the most striking for me is after she karate chops the gun out of Amuro's hand and she's holding him at gunpoint. And it looks like she really might shoot, but Char takes the gun and he turns to her and he, he's looking directly at the camera, directly at the viewer, and he's like, shall we go?
0: So I actually noted a few of these shots because I, I found them very powerful. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the movie felt that they were pretty universally quite aggressive (laughs) Mm -hmm. because we get a shot like that from Christina's perspective right before the cop beats her in the stomach Mm -hmm. with his club.
3: Uh,
0: We get a shot like that of Amuro attacking Char from Char's perspective in I think the first mobile suit battle. Uh, We get that from the pilots of the shuttle with the asteroid flying straight at them or them flying straight at (laughs) the asteroid.
1: Or is it Quest seeing that with her psychic visions, her new type third eye?
0: And then on the tram, when the crowd looks at Char, we see that from Char's perspective. We see the crowd turn towards us.
1: I think that one might be from Quest's perspective.
0: Oh, interesting. Because
1: I was thinking about this. There's the shot of Shar giving his big speech. Um, and they do a really interesting thing with the camera work here because they, they start out very wide, long shot, um, showing us this whole like hangar-turned auditorium where he's giving the speech. And as he's talking about all the big picture history stuff, the camera is slowly moving towards him, but not really showing him yet. And then it gets to him when he starts talking about his own role in the story. And when he's finished, the camera switches and we are seeing the back of his head and what he's looking at. But we're not him in that moment. We're just with him because no one is actually like no one understands Char. No one knows Char. People are just around Char.
2: No, I think that's actually really astute observations because When you do that, you're literally forcing the audience to connect to that character in that moment. And I'm not 100% convinced that it always necessarily ends up working um, because personally for me, I never really... When I really think about it, I can get there, but I never really fully understood why Quest decides to betray Amaro and Hathaway and just leave and abandon them and everything seemingly that she's ever known and grown up with in order to be on Char's side. And that's a really strong, powerful thing to look at. But I think one of the great examples that you mentioned too um, was the subway scene uh, when Quest. Char, and why can't I remember that other character's name?
0: Gyune. <laughs> Gyune. Poor Gyune.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they they give you this moment where I understand in that moment why Quest is so on Char's side. Why she is so deeply within this because she, I think she has a certain thirst for, for power and her proximity to that power is really, it's not just intoxicating to her, it's intoxicating to us as an audience to see a, a group of people really loving and admiring their leader. And those camera shots end up saying a lot when we are behind Char in, during his speeches it makes you feel as if you are a part of that. It makes it very easy to root for him and want to listen to him and to make us feel not necessarily like him. Because like you said, Char is, he's an enigma and I I never fully get him, but I feel like I understand why we're following this man because we're literally forced to. If you're behind somebody, it implies that you are following them, you're behind them, and instills a sense of loyalty. But I think for the most part, they did accomplish that pretty successfully.
0: Yeah, there's one more shot like that, That um, and it ties to another thing that I noticed. But when Amro is telling Hathaway that his desire to save Quest is going to get him killed... There's a point of view shot from Hathaway's perspective where Amuro is looking down at us (laughs) (laughs) disapprovingly.
2: And that says a lot. That's that's, um, a really strong, I think, also very basic, but really effective way of filmmaking because it's well known that when you have a camera angled up, To a character, that gives them power. We frequently see Char from an upward sort of angle. And we end up feeling that like this is a person who is important. They have a lot of influence. But when you are looking down, it has the opposite effect. That person is small. They're insignificant. They don't have a lot of power. So they could have had us see through Amaro's eyes looking down at Hathaway in that moment. But it's really interesting that they decide instead for us to see Hathaway's point of view and understanding that like there's nothing he can do. And he does end up feeling very powerless. And that's almost arguably an effective way of foreshadowing that later on, he isn't in control. He can't save Quest, even though he did this very brave thing. He was never going to take her away from Char. He was never going to save her. And then his frustration with that really built throughout the movie to the point where you know he ends up killing this poor woman who was just trying to help Mm -hmm.
0: there was another kind of uh shot that i saw used a few times there are a bunch of in my notes i call them like leg or foot shots (laughs) but shots from very low down where you just see someone's legs running by or the wheels of a car or like most of them is out of frame uh And I have speculated before that Tomino might have been influenced by Ozu, who's a quite famous Japanese director and who is credited as inventing what they call the tatami shot, which is a a shot from the level of someone kneeling on the ground Uh, and would even build his sets and build special tripods and stuff to accommodate this but these very low to the ground shots and not necessarily angled upwards, just like straight across, but from a very low level. It happens again when Quest takes the gun from Amuro. We get a shot of just like her feet (laughs) running across the field. Did you notice anything in the movie that you felt was stylistically similar to other directors or particular genres? You know, there's something about Gundam that
2: ends up feeling very familiar and not just simply because it's a franchise. that A lot of people have some sort of passing knowledge of how do I put this? It feels classic. It builds on the traditions of what's come before. As you of course know, there's a long really rich history of animation in Japan and it looks a tiny little bit like Astro boy, Obviously not that like round, and obviously not that cute. That's a very distinct style. But there's there's a softness in the way that the characters are sort of illustrated. It's not this angular like Dragon Ball Z sort of <laughs> style.
0: It's funny that you mention Astro Boy because Tomino worked on Astro Boy,
1: uh, and he actually ended up directing more episodes of Astro Boy than any other single director.
2: Oh wow! Okay.
1: And also, you mentioned Neon Genesis Evangelion earlier. Anno, the director of Evangelion, was on the design staff for this movie.
2: Wow. <laughs> that's, that makes me seem a lot smarter and more important than I actually was about these things. Yeah, I can clearly see that that influence beforehand. And any, any mecha anime is clearly inspired by, by Gundam. But it's, yeah, that's really fascinating. <laughs>
1: I suspect that may be the essence of that familiarity that you mentioned, that right. feeling like, like Gundam, even if you haven't seen it before, like you've kind of seen it before. Um, and that's probably because Gundam, like, I mean, besides soaking up influences the way any piece of work does, Gundam itself has been such a landmark, it's influenced everything that came after it.
0: It feels familiar because we watched anime that came out afterwards that was influenced by it, and so there's this sense of continuity. Hey, it,
2: it feels comfortable and familiar, even though obviously nothing in this was super familiar to me. It's, it's really beautiful to me the way that over the generations, anime and those that create it and, and mangakas build upon each other in order to make it this kind of rich history that you can't really separate any one IP from the next or the one that comes before it because they they all contribute On this tiny island of Japan and this country that ends up exporting so much culture and so many fascinating, unique things that you can't help but have some connection and familiarity with anything that ends up coming to you, whether it's, it's brand new or whether it's extremely old like Astro Boy, you're going to see these threads. Every single time, and then end up finding out that there's, um, you know, the same animators or directors or voice actors or just writers that, you know, loved something that came before it that you probably love
1: too. I have a question for you about the sort of specific camera work. And I am aware that that is a weird term to use (laughs) in animation since the camera is not moving at all. Right. But I say that because there are definitely shots in this movie where it seems like they are trying to simulate the movement of a camera. There'll be shots where they'll make it look as though the camera is like fixed in place and then rotating and the proportions of everything on screen change the way we would expect them to if the camera was just tilting. And yet the camera is not moving. So they must have drawn that. They must have gone to extra lengths, extra effort To draw things so that it looked like there was a physical camera sitting there in space and rotating. Yes,
2: that's that's exactly what they did. Um, In my limited experience in animation, this movie really shows a mastery of models. They know what every single one of these mobile suits looks like from every single angle. And when they do move the camera like that, especially in the fights, I can imagine a scene from a movie in my head right now of two mobile suits like locked in combat extremely closely and the camera moving from right to the left around them and yes like that's something that has to be animated that has to be posed it has to have continuous fluid movement it was very clearly a priority for them and my theory is that when the camera is doing something like that it gives a sense of both largeness and also claustrophobia. So for instance, say you're watching some trash TV, like 90 Day Fiance. And what you'll notice is every single time the couple meets in person for the first time, the cameraman makes sure to go around them in a circle. And it looks great on camera, but I always like to think about how awkward (laughs)
0: that probably really (laughs) looks
2: to everybody else in the airport to see this cameraman just going around these two people making out. But it really wraps you up in the scene and makes you feel very close. It makes everything feel very dramatic and big. Honestly, like it's really it's really fascinating to me that they do that because it is so difficult to successfully execute something like that much more because it's a 2d space it's not necessary to give us the idea of three dimensions for us to buy into what we're visually seeing but they do that in order to give us a sense of emotional investment in that moment even if it's on a subconscious level
0: considerably simpler to animate uh, but similar in that i think it also establishes that feeling of uh closeness and claustrophobia (laughs) and also gives a sense of scale but in a few shots of the mobile suits we're so close that parts of the mobile suit are cut out of the frame Mm -hmm. like the very first introduction of shar's sazabi the camera is so close to it you can't see the whole mobile suit (laughs) and then it flies away from us as it's taking off to go join the battle uh And they didn't have to do that. They could have framed it in such a way that we could see the whole mobile suit from the beginning, but it makes it feel larger to have it cut off by the proximity of the camera. Right. As if it's something so large and important that you could
2: never really actually get a good view of it. When I would make a decision to do something like that, it would specifically be so that you feel as if you're wrapped up in this moment. And like you said, that sense of, of claustrophobia, like you have to face this. You have to be with this. There's nothing you can do. You're powerless because you are so close and also because you are not capable of actually taking it in. What Char is doing is bigger than him. It's, it's a movement. It's a, It's a society. It's this whole group of people who believe in and are counting on him to destroy the earth, I I, I guess, or people on earth. I guess that's what they want. (laughs) I'm not not sure what they think he's doing. But regardless, they believe in him. And his mobile suit is indicative of this sort of power, something way bigger than himself. Um, And that specific kind of shot also reminds me of uh, propaganda. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of if, if you look at sort of kind of old school propaganda, it's it is very close shots of the leaders or it is sort of that upward angle that it comes to mind like in, you know, imperialist Japanese propaganda as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's that's me probably connecting it to the color red, to be fair. <laughs> But yeah i would say that's that's definitely that's what they're going for they're trying to make it seem like he what he represents is something so much bigger than himself than we could really individually have him.
1: the first shot of the new gundam at the very beginning of the movie does kind of a similar thing because it's when it's got its armor off it's being assembled uh there's still like tarps covering parts of it um we get the sense of this huge project that so many different people have worked on and are continuing to work on even in this moment, that there's this huge effort behind Amaro.
2: Yes. um, I'm actually looking at that on my TV right now because not only is that one of the first things we see in like the first couple minutes of the movie, but it's where the title screen comes on. They're very explicitly telling us this is something That's big. This is something to pay attention to. It's a big deal. And because we see those colors, we see those yellows, we see those reds, we see those blues, even under all like the plastic and the tarps and the little bits of tape here and there, all of that is still pointing to Amuro and kind of his ultimate victory, I think, in the movie, but also kind of the hope of the people that are on Earth. Because if he can't do it in this, then they're kind of screwed. Uh,
1: one more camera work question. Mm. I noticed that there seems to be a link between how dynamic the camera work is and how exciting the events happening on screen are. A lot of the dialogue scenes are very sort of standard, immobile cameras showing you know, the waist up. During exciting moments, the camera is moving around. It's panning for the battles in space. The starscape in the background is always moving. In the shuttle scene, when they're trying to escape Earth and trying to avoid being hit by flaming debris, it's all shot on these, like, askew Dutch angles. It seems like how much movement the camera is doing is conveying to us how exciting the scene is supposed to be.
2: It is. Those things are, are planned far out in advance. It's very unlike doing a live action filming where you, it could just be, it's like, oh, let's make sure we're getting a shot of this from this angle. Maybe we need a shot of this from this angle. It's planned well in advance beforehand when they're storyboarding it. They know that these sort of camera angles are going to happen. It's literally written, you know, on the sides of the boxes. So the animators specifically know this is a, this is a wide shot as the, camera is panning down it's moving we see space in the background we can see a wide angle of these gundams beautifully flying around and the trails that they leave behind it's really strong choices like that that make it so that the those fights are so dynamic it makes it feel so much more dynamic than the dialogue scenes most of the time it it makes it feel like that's Definitely the part they care about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's why you're watching the movie.
2: Yeah. Like, you're here to see really pretty robot space fights, and that's mostly what you're going to get.
0: And now, Tom's research on the statues that appear in the background of the film's final scene on Earth.
1: After the Psycho Frame Resonance event ends the threat posed by Axis to the Earth, hopeful music plays, and we see a succession of scenes set on the planet, showing us what has been saved. Two blonde children, a boy and a girl who look a little bit like Char and Selah, with their ages reversed, watch the lights from their window. An old woman in bed pulls the curtain open so she can see. A crumbling castle overlooking a sleepy town somewhere in the mountains a mother elephant and her two calves munch on savanna grass ignorant of the danger that they just escaped we hear a baby crying in a forest cottage we see hathaway looking stunned in the open cockpit of his drifting jagan mirai and chaiman pause in the midst of changing a flat tire the sky obscured by dust from the Lhasa drop the last scene of the movie before the end credits and beyond the time, is of Quest's hippie friends, still led by the new type theorist Christina. They pause in the middle of climbing a hill to look back over their shoulders at the lights in the sky. Behind them we see a ravine with sheer rock walls and two huge statues carved into alcoves in the stone. Gundam's art directors have never been shy about incorporating appropriately cinematic real-world landscapes, and so it should be no surprise that this shot depicts a very real place. There are lots of giant statues carved into cliff faces. After all, if you want to carve a truly giant statue, it is generally going to be easier to go where the giant rock is instead of trying to bring a giant rock to you. Quite a few of them are in or near China like the statues of the Buddha at Leshan, near Chengdu. That one is the tallest pre-modern statue in the world, at 233 feet, or 71 meters tall. To put that into Gundam perspective, the Leshan Buddha is roughly the height of a gun tank sitting on top of a Big Zam. The statues that appear at the end of Shar's counterattack are a pair, one larger on the left, and one smaller on the right. Both are set in rounded alcoves, with other alcoves or perhaps small cave entrances on either side. The taller one appears to be standing, while the smaller one is too indistinctly drawn for its pose to be discernible. But it doesn't need to be. The specific arrangement and the relative sizes of these statues gives away their identity. These are, unmistakably, the Buddhas of Bamiyan. Or they were. Bamiyan is the name for a valley in the highlands of Afghanistan, about 80 miles, or 130 kilometers, west of Kabul, as well as the city that lies in that valley. It's a mountainous region, and to the north the valley is bordered by steep sandstone cliffs. A thousand years ago, it was an important stop on the Silk Road, a vital interchange between the Muslim and Buddhist worlds. Back in the 6th century, before the rise of Islam, Bamiyan was ruled by the Hephthalites. They were a Central Asian people who contended with the nearby Sassanid Empire for several centuries, before being ruled over first by a clan of Turks from the east, and then by the rapidly expanding Arab Empire from the west. But in those few centuries, they ruled over a thriving Buddhist monastic community in Bamiyan. A pilgrim who visited the region in 630 described more than 10 monasteries inhabited by some thousand monks. The sandstone cliffs around the town were pockmarked with small caves, some of which can be seen in Shah's Counterattack, and these served as shelter for Buddhist hermits. Those hermit monks took to decorating their caves with religious art, including statues and frescoes. And at some point between 550 and 650, they set to work on a similar project on a much larger scale. Cutting two massive niches into the cliff face, they carved a pair of massive statues. The larger of the two was about 55 meters tall, that's roughly one Big Sam, and the smaller was a comparatively diminutive 38 meters, just a bit shorter than the Psycho Gundam. In the walls behind each massive statue, there were more cave entrances, leading into small chapels. Though the basic structure of each statue was sandstone, the monks added details with a mud, straw, and horsehair plaster, which was then painted. The larger one was probably painted red, the smaller a mixture of colors, primarily blue and white, a bit like the Sazabi and the Gundam. The statues were on the south face of the cliff overlooking Bamiyan. And because the geography of that region is so distinct and the movie background so detailed, we can actually make a reasonably informed guess as to exactly where Christina and her companions are standing in that scene. They are probably in the mountains southwest of Bamiyan, around 34 degrees, 49 minutes north, 67 degrees, 48 minutes east. The decorations on the statues, which may have included metal accents and precious gems, were gone by the time European adventurers arrived to document the giant Buddhas. But the statues themselves survived up through the 20th century. And they were still standing, with some wear and tear, when shar's counterattack landed in theaters in March 1988. In 1998, during the Afghan Civil War, the Taliban seized control of Bamiyan. A local Taliban commander started demolition of the statues, blowing the head off the smaller Buddha with dynamite. But he was soon stopped by the senior leadership. The statues remained relatively intact for several more years, But in early 2001, the Taliban reversed course and, over international objections, ordered the statues destroyed. Before the attacks began, various museums, countries, and United Nations agencies appealed to the Taliban government in hopes of saving the statues. Interestingly, for our purposes, it was the Japanese delegation who proved the most passionate. They marshaled a host of theological arguments and practical solutions, even proposing to relocate the statues to Japan, to no avail. That march, the Taliban opened fire, using anti-tank mines, rockets, dynamite, anti-aircraft guns, and even artillery to bring down the statues. The caves behind them survived in a second life as weapons stockpiles, but most of the cave paintings were destroyed. Six months later, U.S.-backed forces drove the Taliban out of Bamiyan. Today, the niches in which the statues once stood are still there. There was talk of rebuilding them during the 20-year-long U.S. occupation, but with the Taliban back in control of Afghanistan as of this recording, that now seems vanishingly unlikely. Like Lapnur, the wandering salt lake that featured in First Gundam and just isn't there anymore in the real world, in this one small way, Char's counterattack offers a vision of the future that turned out to be unrealistically optimistic. And now, Nina's research on technology miniaturization in the 1980s and how it may have inspired the Psycho Frame.
0: When Amuro goes to pick up the new Gundam, October says to him, Our R&D division took that idea of yours and built it right into the frame, meaning the Saikomu. He goes on to say, These computer chips are about the size of metal particles. They're integrated into the frame. And he shows Amuro and Chen a diagram that appears to show the various metal molecules of the metal alloy that make up the mobile suit's frame in a neat array of circles. How much of this idea is truly science fiction, and how much of it is based in the science and theory of the time? How small were computer chips in the late 80s? How small were they projected to get? First to clarify some terms, I checked the Japanese and October specifically does not say that the chips are the size of metal atoms or molecules. He says particles. And particle is a very nonspecific term. Even in the chemistry context, it just means a small portion of matter, and encompasses an enormous range of sizes, from subatomic particles, such as electrons, to particles large enough to be seen, such as particles of dust floating in sunlight. To talk about computer chips, I need to talk about transistors. Simply put, a transistor is a semiconductor device that amplifies or switches an electrical signal or electrical power. The transistor was invented in 1947, but when we talk about transistors now, we usually mean a specific type, the MOSFET, Metal Oxide Semiconductor Field Effect Transistor, or MOS transistor. Invented in 1959 by Mohamed Atala and Dawon Kang at Bell Labs, these were the first mass-producible, compact transistors that could be put toward a wide variety of uses. Among other things, this new kind of transistor facilitated the creation of smaller integrated circuits. Also called microchips or chips, integrated circuits feature electronic circuits on a piece of semiconductor material, usually silicon, with a large number of integrated MOS transistors. They are smaller, faster, and cheaper per unit than chips made from discrete components, but they have a higher upfront cost when it comes to setting up manufacturing so they're only commercially viable if they're manufactured in large quantities. We often take for granted that smaller is better, but allow me to lay out some of the reasons why that's true. Smaller chips are faster because the electrical signals travel shorter physical distances. They're cheaper both because they use less material and, in the case of integrated circuits, their production is more automated. Smaller transistors and chips allow for more computing power in a smaller package. This then affects the size of the devices those chips go into. Smaller devices have convenience factor. They're more portable. And in consumer electronics, miniaturization opens up new markets. It would be an odd person who put a mainframe computer in their home, but think of the new markets that opened up as computers became smaller. And the same goes for devices like camcorders, phones, and radios. And we cannot talk about miniaturization without talking about Moore's Law. In 1965, Gordon Moore, then the Director of Research and Development at Fairchild Semiconductor, was asked to contribute to the 35th anniversary edition of Electronics Magazine. They asked for predictions. What was going to happen in the semiconductor components industry over the next 10 years? He predicted that miniaturization of components would continue, and in what he later called a wild extrapolation, said that the number of components that could fit on a single quarter-square-inch semiconductor would double every year for the next 10 years. At a conference in 1975, he revised this forecast, predicting that annual doubling would last until around 1980, after which doubling would happen every two years. It was shortly after this conference that a Caltech professor, Carver Mead, popularized the term Moore's Law, Although, to quote the Wikipedia page, Moore viewed his eponymous law as surprising and optimistic, saying, Moore's law is a violation of Murphy's law. Everything gets better and better. Some consider Moore's law a self-fulfilling prophecy because of its influence on the behavior of the semiconductor industry and its R&D and manufacturing processes. If you've heard a version that involves doubling every 18 months rather than two years, that is actually a separate but related theory by Moore's colleague, Intel executive David House. In 1975, he noted that if transistor counts doubled every two years, computer chip performance would double every 18 months if power consumption were kept constant. There's been a noticeable slowdown in this progress since the 2010s, Although several specific manufacturers claim they are keeping pace. And forecasters, including Moore himself, predict that Moore's law will end sometime this decade. To quote Moore again, it can't continue forever. The nature of exponentials is that you push them out and eventually disaster happens. I don't know about disaster, but there are physical limitations on miniaturization once engineers are working at the atomic level. One source I read was a fascinating U.S. government report from 1991, so just a couple of years after the release of CCA, discussing the contemporary state of miniaturization technology, cutting-edge research, and predictions for the future. As of 1991, miniaturization of silicon electronics showed no signs of slowing, consumer electronics like radios, computers, and telephones were shrinking, and it was thought that research would continue miniaturization to molecular and even atomic levels. Because it's a government report, much of the focus is on international competition. So there's a fair amount of information about Japan, though it's colored by that outside perspective, and a few relevant to CCA trends emerged. Firstly, US R&D was largely funded by government agencies, especially military ones like the Department of Defense and DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, but also the Department of Energy and a number of universities. But in Japan, R&D and miniaturization was mostly being pushed by corporations. Cough, cough, hello, Anaheim Electronics.
1: Just like a corporation.
0: Mind you, this is a fuzzier distinction than it looks like, since the US has plenty of military contractors, and it's not unusual for government agencies to partner with them on research. But there is a difference in where the funds come from and who originates the projects. Another difference was that most U.S. research was focused on shrinking transistors to smaller and smaller sizes, while research in Japan was more focused on implementing transistors into products. In 1985, Japan was a leader in the use of surface mount technologies, and was projected to maintain its lead vis-a-vis Europe and the United States through at least 1995 and possibly through 2005. Unless I'm entirely misunderstanding the definitions, surface mount technologies are related to the integrated circuits I defined earlier. It's about how you mount the various electrical components directly to the surface of the printed circuit board in automated processes, as opposed to mounting on what are called hole through circuit boards, which is done manually. At the time, some of the cutting edge uses of miniaturization included biosensors and micromechanical structures. Biosensors detect specific chemicals or molecules. Integrated with electronics, they were mostly used in medicine, food processing, industrial process monitoring, and so on. But as miniaturization made them smaller and cheaper, research was being done into potential applications in robotics and aerospace technology, and Japan was a leader in biosensor development.
1: Uh, I think actually the biosensor was integrated into the Zeta Gundam and it allowed Camille (laughs) to leverage his powerful new type abilities. I think you need to check your sources.
0: Wouldn't that make new type powers like a biological compound, a chemical, a particle, something detectable? We'll talk about that at the end of this piece. Even in 1991, tiny mechanical structures included, quote, motors and turbines as wide as a hair and gear assemblies smaller than a fleck of dust. These were mostly used for sensors and instrumentation, for example, accelerometers, and the Japanese research focused on health and industrial applications. Yeah, did you know most accelerometers are a tiny piece of silicon at the end of a little like arm and the sensor can tell how much it moves and that can measure acceleration?
1: That's definitely more than I knew about accelerometers.
0: At the same time, they could see what fundamental hurdles to further miniaturization were, and they were mostly in materials science and manufacturing processes. Once you're working at the molecular level, how do you bond molecules to surfaces? How do you stabilize them so that they only move or change under the specific conditions that you want them to move and change? How do you interface between molecules and circuitry? How are a material's properties different at those small sizes? Not really relevant to CCA, but too interesting not to share, I learned that lithography is an essential process in making integrated circuits and is a choke point in continuing miniaturization. Lithography is a process in which plates are specially treated so that a paint or ink will only adhere to certain areas. It's been used in fine art printmaking for a really long time. In chip production, the substrate or base is coated in a light-sensitive film, also called photoresist, then hit with very specific wavelengths of light to print tiny, very accurate patterns. And these patterns are then used to guide etching and deposition for integrated circuits and other components. Precision lithography at smaller and smaller scales has been a major hurdle to miniaturization. And since the 1980s, Japan has been at the forefront of technology to improve the accuracy and decrease the size of photolithography, with improvements to equipment and to photoresists. This 1991 report suggested that silicon electronics would hit their physical limits in the early 2000s. Things haven't quite worked out that way, but it will happen. So what would come after? One cutting edge and largely theoretical at that time possibility was molecular and biological machines, wherein individual molecules would be the switching devices instead of semiconductor transistors. There was a period of what the report called intense interest in this kind of computing in the early 80s. In the late 50s and early 60s, Richard Feynman and Eric Drexler wrote conceptual articles about the possibility of molecular machines, Molecules that would build other molecules, similar to how DNA builds proteins. Of course, estimates on when such technology might be possible ranged from 10 to 30 years to centuries to never.
1: Oh, it's fusion. It's just fusion.
0: Yep. Then there's quantum electronics, using the properties and behavior, or quantum states, of atoms and subatomic particles to perform calculations. I tried to understand this at a deeper and more detailed level, but I think I'm going to have to quote a young wizard from Terry Pratchett and just say that it works because of quantum. There are quantum computers now, in 2021, used mostly for complex algorithms, but they are much larger in scale than traditional computers because of their cooling systems. They have to be kept as close to absolute zero as possible. What does all of this mean for computing in the universal century? For one thing, chips the size of metal particles had already been theoretically possible when CCA was made, and now, in 2021, they are proven possible. Just this year, IBM unveiled the smallest ever computer chip, coming in at just 2 nanometers, which is the width of a strand of DNA. There's a photo in the show notes of the chip sitting in the point of a hypodermic needle. For another point of reference, a human hair is 10,000 nanometers wide. I think the real sticking point in the actual feasibility of these computer chips embedded in the substance of the new Gundam's frame is HOW are they embedded? How are they linked to each other, and to the other computing and instrumentation for the mobile suit? One thing that occurred to me, thinking again about the scene where Gune captures and electrocutes Amuro and the new Gundam, Based on Amuro's reaction and how it affects the mobile suit, it would seem that Gundarium, aka Luna Titanium, the substance of that frame, is a semiconductor. And that the cockpit and the mobile suit itself are only lightly insulated against electricity or possibly not insulated at all? Which is quite a choice for your weapon of war, unless it needs to be uninsulated. If whatever comprises new type energy, new type signals, needs to be able to travel through the frame and would be obstructed by insulation. I feel like we've speculated before about how new type powers work, but if they behave like electricity, and the PsychoMu and PsychoFrame both work like transistors to amplify that power, that would make a kind of sense. I'm sure it will never behave in a completely consistent way, but it's fun to think about the scientific implications of psychic powers augmented by cutting-edge technology. Regardless of whether or not they thought through all the implications of particle-sized chips in a metal alloy, this is one of the more sciency parts of Gundam's science fiction based in real theories and I'm sure real hype about the future of computer miniaturization.
1: When it comes to the scientific properties of new type powers, I can only say, huh, that's interesting.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Next time on episode 4.7, On the Other Side of Darkness. The return of our physics consultant, our final thoughts on CCA, and science the right kind of nitpicking. Capes weighed down by gravity. Here we go again, for the last time. The neck.
3: Kiss me I'm
0: Tom, we are doing something extremely wicked. <laughs> <laughs> Through the looking glass. Unlike other mass-murdering autocrats, Shar thinks his actions are justified. And somehow, we are still not done talking about this movie. You can change your destiny. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at gundampodcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.
1: The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout, Gundam is a doctor-recommended replacement for therapy, but only if you have chronic or severe mommy issues. We won't hear you. But the world needs to know. This week's wrong gun of opinion comes from Joni. Thank you, Joni.
2: I wanted to ask you guys too. Um, I'm curious about the translation because mm-hmm. I, I watched it subtitled, um, and I'm pretty confident some of the translations are weird.
1: Uh huh. I think that's actually been a thing that's come up in every guest interview we've done so far. Um, Oh, really? Different different people have focused on different lines that felt a little wonky. Yeah, Yeah. it's a um, a 2002-era anime translation.
2: Why any... Oh, sorry, my neighbor. That's okay. (laughs) That's fine. I don't know if you can hear that. Oh, oh, I heard just now. Okay, yeah, I know. It's trash night. All right, let me start it. Because right. <laughs> um, by the time, by, I don't just jump on the bed, sorry. Hi, Indio. Can you, oh, can you lay down, please? You're just, you're just, you're just being a lot. Can you lay down? Lay down. Thank you. Good boy. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Tatiana. This is actually really fun.
1: Good, (laughs) because we're probably going to ask you to come back.
2: (laughs) Yay! No, I I would love to.
1: Uh, Can we ask you to go back and say basically all of that again?
2: And then Bondi just just cut that and we're like, no, you can't do that. We
1: Well, we don't know for certain that it was Bondi, but some some sponsors said they didn't want that. Right. Correct. <laughs> oh, I see, just gonna blow my theory up.
0: Just a little bit.
1: I was gonna point out a funny thing about this, but on that transition <laughs> it feels kinda weird to do it.